The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor, author, director, Ethan Hawke. Hawke has been making movies since he was a teenager, beginning with Joe Dante's 1985 film, The Explorers. In the intervening 35 years, you've probably seen him in movies like Dead Poets Society, Training Day, The Before Trilogy, Boyhood, and First Reformed. His most recent project, which he directed, is a six-part documentary called The Last Movie Stars. It tells the story of actors, activists, husband and wife, Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman. Here's a clip from the film. I'm trying to ask all my friends and to make these audios come alive. I'm trying to turn it into kind of like a play with voices. A community looking back. And so that's what I'm doing here with you. And Sammy Rockwell is going to read the director of Cool Hand Luke. Laura Linney is going to do Joanne Woodward. Zoe Kazan is going to play Paul's first wife. Karen Allen is playing Joanne's stepmother. Josh Hamilton is going to read the director of The Sting. Vincent D'Onofrio is going to do John Huston. George Clooney agreed to read Paul. So we're, we're having fun kind of revisiting the generation before us. So I'll just read through. I'll probably just read through it and, you know, we'll just go through. You, you just, know just read it through once. Great, great. <clears throat> I think when people look back on this epic, if anybody does for any reason, 
They presided over sort of the end of the movies as the universal art form. Movies have now become taken over by television, mini-series, and are now more interesting to the general public than the feature film. So I think people will think of them as the last movie stars. That was a scene from the film The Last Movie Stars, now available to stream on HBO Max. As a young actor coming up in New York City in the 80s and 90s, Hawk idolized Newman and Woodward. But the film, like most of Hawk's work, is more honest and vulnerable than you may expect. It doesn't shy away from what made Newman and Woodward human. Their insecurities, their vanity, their successes and failures, their torrid love affair on and off screen. The Last Movie Stars lays it all on the table, which is something Ethan has been doing for over three decades in his work. Whether he's playing a Gen X slacker in Reality Bites, Chet Baker in Born to be Blue, or John Brown in The Good Lord Bird, Hawk has managed to reinvent himself again and again and again. In today's talk, we discuss his new movie, The Last Movie Stars, growing up in a divorce household between New Jersey and Texas, some formative experiences with River Phoenix and Robin Williams, the legacy of the Before Trilogy, how he's put his real-life pain into his make-believe characters, and a whole lot more. Before we jump in, I just want to say that this is a very special episode for us here at the show. I kind of feel like a broken record saying that, but sometimes people come into the studio and there's just an energy about them. I can't exactly explain it, but you know it when it happens. And they come into the room, sit down, and just share their lives so openly and vulnerably in ways you couldn't anticipate. And that's exactly what happened here in this episode. So I just want to thank Ethan Hawke for coming on this program and sharing so much. And I want to thank you, wherever you are right now, in the middle of this summer, I thank you for being here with us in this moment. I hope you enjoy. Testing one, testing two. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Derek Jeter steps to the plate. First pitch, low and inside. Swing and a miss. Second pitch, oh, it's a base hit. Derek Jeter. I love when Derek Jeter was like, hey, Derek, when are you getting married? And he said, when I'm done playing for the Yankees. I have to tell you, there is such <laughs> wisdom in that comment. You know, I, I really feel that way. There's all these people out there in the world. They, they want to have everything. They want to be the greatest rock star in the world and a family man. And Derek Cheater was like, I'm shortstop for the New York Yankees. Right now, I'm going to be single. And someday, I won't be shortstop for the New York Yankees. And then I'll be a family man. And uh, I think he showed real brains. It was a smart move. Um, should we jump in here? Yeah, sure. Ethan Hawke, pleasure to meet you. Nice to meet you. How are you feeling? Discombobulated. There's something about the world we live in and trying to promote movies and trying to put yourself out there. You want to do the right thing and not waste people's time. And I hate trying to be a salesman, but I love the projects I work on. And so you have a responsibility to be their champion. And, you know, the last six months or so, I had the Marvel show Moon Knight came out, Black Phone came out, and now I'm having 
The Last Movie Stars, this documentary, all of these are really different projects and operate a different landscape in my brain. But you have to promote them all. And there's something about putting on the face of a public person that just invariably makes you feel like a fake person. I was taking a walk this morning and I was so grateful. I, I ran into Isaac Butler, who wrote this amazing book called The Method, which has been my favorite book of the year so far. It obviously speaks to my life. He, he's kind of chronicling the history of method acting and starting with Tolstoy's essay, What is Art? and how its impact on Chekhov and Stanislavski and the Russian Revolution and how this thought made its way to New York and to the actor's studio and how the actor's studio exploded and changed contemporary movies. And, you know, that's right in line. I was reading it and obsessed with it because my documentary, you know, Paul and Joanne were in the actor's studio together with in class with Brando and James Dean and Marilyn Monroe and all those kind of people. And so this book was really helping me as I was thinking about making the documentary. But I just ran into the guy in the street. So I say discombobulated because one part I feel like a plastic person. And then on the other part, I got to meet a real person and I feel really grateful. Well, the goal of this conversation is to try to get to the real person. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Why don't we start with this new movie you mentioned, The Last Movie Stars. So in the late 80s, early 90s, Paul Newman was trying to write a memoir. To do that, he commissioned his screenwriter friend, Stuart Stern, to conduct interviews with the people that knew him best. His wife, Joanne Woodward, his closest friends like Gore Vidal and George Roy Hill, his children, his ex-wife. Stuart talks to all of them. Then, years later, once Newman has kind of abandoned the memoir, he decides to find the tapes, take them down to the dumpster, and set them on fire. Which, I have to say, as someone who conducts interviews for a living, is unquestionably my worst nightmare. <laughs> but then, there's one more plot twist in this story, and that is where you enter and begin to resurrect these interviews. How does that come to be? So the family asks me if I'll do this documentary. I'm scared to death to say yes, but I do it. The audios were all lost or destroyed. There was a couple that we found that were unusable. And I was just despondent because I had the transcripts. You know, Stuart had had them transcribed, but I was like, well, if I don't have these people talking, I don't have a movie. And then I realized, wait a second, I'm an actor. A documentary about Paul and Joanne should be a documentary about acting. Why don't I call up my friends and we can recreate these interviews and we can edit them and splice them together. And maybe I could tell the story of Paul and Joanne's life through their friends and through their community. And one of the things that I love about this idea is that we don't exist in a vacuum. You know, you can't tell your story or my story without telling the story of the people around us, our friends, the people who shape the way we think society, culture, what's happening politically is, is moving us internally and externally. And so to make a good portrait of Paul and Joanne, I had to utilize their community. And likewise, it shouldn't just be me doing it. It should be my community and our generation looking back on the one before it. What do these people in their time have to offer us right now? You know, it was the pandemic. So I would just Zoom with different friends and say, you know, I'll take Sam Rockwell, for example. You know, I was just telling him, okay, well, you remember Cool Hand Luke? And sure, we'd geek out about Cool Hand Luke and what an unbelievable performance that was and what a great film it was. And I was like, all right. So Stuart Rosenberg was his director. He directed him in like four movies. They were really good friends. This is the attitude. I'd read the whole transcript and I'd know that 
it's written when Stuart ordered his first drink, when he ordered his <laughs> second drink, when it, you know. So I, I tried to recreate those feelings, and I didn't want the sound quality to be too good. I wanted them to feel like they were lost and rediscovered, and more like we were eavesdropping on Friends, not listening to a legitimate documentary. There's this great old play when I was first fall in love with acting Dylan Thomas under Milkwood, which is just a, a play of voices. It's just a collage of lots of different community of people speaking. And I thought, what if this is, you know, under the Milkwood part two, Joanne and Paul electric boogaloo, you know? <laughs> was that the title you pitched to HBO and CNN? <laughs> no, 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 that was not the title I pitched. <laughs> yeah, sign us up for that. That sounds incredible. <laughs> That's the beginning of how this film came to be. But the beginning of your Paul Newman fandom begins in Fort Worth, Texas, which is where you partially grew up. And on one hot July Sunday, on the way to church, your father turns to you and says, what? He said, would you rather go to the movies? My stepmother wasn't feeling well that day. And, and so we were just alone in the car and we were all, we were duded up in our like, you know, clip on ties and everything. <laughs> and they were doing a re-release of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is, you know, before VHS and streaming and stuff, these, you know, Sound of Music would come out every other Christmas or something, you know, they'd, you know, the different great films would get re-releases. And so, I don't know, it was probably 78 or 79 or something, 10 years after the movie came out. But my dad took me and we had popcorn for breakfast, skipped church. One weird detail of the story, I don't know how well you remember your childhood, but I had done something positive, I don't know, mowing the lawn or something, and my father, if I had done this good deed, my father was going to buy me a Star Trek action figure. So after church, we were going to go get the Star Trek thing, but we didn't go to church. We went to the movies. And afterwards, he's like, hey, you want to go get that Star Trek action figure? And I was like, no, I want a Butch Cassidy action figure. And, and the Lone Ranger action figure had a bad guy, Bad Bart. So I got Bad Bart and I dressed him up as Butch Cassidy and had his horse and everything. And I imagined him. So Butch made a huge psychological impression on me at a very young age. When you're eight or nine in the late 70s and you're watching this film, with your father. What are you seeing in Paul Newman that excites you? It's a masculine portrait of some of the attributes we most long for in ourselves. The ability to be both honest and funny, you know, not pretentious. To be a rebel and trustworthy. That was his sweet spot. Part of why he was so excelled at playing darker characters is because he had so much light in him that you could like the character. You mean, take a movie like HUD, take a movie like uh, Sweet Bird of Youth, Cat and Hot Tin Roof, The Hustler, obviously, and even later films like The Verdict and everything. He's playing really morally complex people, but there's something about his inner light that makes you think he's a good person. So it's not a bad person, it's a good person doing bad things. When we do bad things, that's what we see it as. Like, you don't understand. I know I did this crappy thing, but I'm a good person. Like, well, you did something. And so I used to call him when I was really studying acting and thinking about it. You know, I used to call him one of the great first person actors of all time. There's like Daniel Day-Lewis, to me, works in the third person. He creates full multidimensional characters, but they're not him. There's something other. He's like shamanistic in his approach. I'm just a fan. I'm watching. But but Paul, it was like, that's Paul Newman as Ombre. That's Paul Newman in The Verdict. It, it's not the character. It's Paul. It's Paul Newman as. Yeah, Paul Newman as. 
it's the classic definition of a leading man. He is guiding you through a story and he's kind of your friend. And he can even play a horrible person, but he's your friend who's going through this horrible time. I mean, I think that was what's so radical about a movie like HUD for people who haven't seen it. I mean, it's a brilliant, you know, it's based on a Larry McMurtry story and uh, directed by Marty Ritt, some of the most beautiful photography. It's one of the great Texas movies of all time. But he plays a world-class, horrible human being. He's the ultimate anti-hero. But he does it with such swagger and such confidence that you find yourself liking him. And it breaks your brain. He does downright despicable things. It cuts an insight into humanity and how things, why bad things happen in a way that's really brilliant. And that's his unique genius, I think. In this time, you're sort of falling in love with his work. This is the late 70s, early 80s. At that point, your parents had separated. You're living primarily with your mother on the East Coast, first Connecticut, then Vermont, Brooklyn, eventually Princeton. And in this upbringing, she shows you movies like Scenes from a Marriage at age four. For your fifth birthday, she says, why don't we go to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? (laughs) She does this while working odd jobs as a department store buyer, a waitress, and ultimately a college textbook editor. Of this time, your mother said, she was focused on making sure your life was exceptional. I expected him to be better than most people to accomplish more. Did you feel those expectations as a kid? Yes. I mean, it's funny to hear you say that, but like, I remember we had a photo album, you know, like back in before people had iPhones and stuff, you'd print up a couple pictures and you keep an album. And my mother would do the weirdest things. They didn't seem weird to me now then because I was just a kid and whatever happens to you is what you think is what happens to everybody. But she had like this photo album and in one of the pictures, there was this like black and white portrait of me And I had a really filthy nose. What do you mean? I mean, I had some, like, dried snot on the side of my nose. I looked like, you know, an 11-year-old kid, you know, who was up to no good. She loved this picture. In the album, it just says right underneath it, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Snotty-Nosed Kid. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, she's giving me Joycean references to think about myself. She gave me a letter from a Birmingham jail for my 16th birthday, you know, when I started being superficial and pretentious and caring about what kind of sneaker I had or whether my shirt had an alligator on it or didn't. You know, she took me to Haiti to work with Mother Teresa's order in the Home for the Dying. This is the woman that that she is. And you kind of come back from an experience like that and you don't really care whether your shirt has an alligator on it or not. You know, I don't, it's not every kid's mother's giving them Wallace Stevens and Thomas Merton. And I thought everybody did. <laughs> I remember my dad at age nine saying, all right, it's time for Goodfellas. <laughs> and, and then my mom around 12 or 13 was like, it's time for Boogie Nights. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me and my parents, but that's something like that. There was a curiosity. Well, what's fun about that story is that you actually are getting to know your parents and your parents are revealing to you art that speaks to them. And because of that, they're creating a possible avenue for intimacy with them. You know, and I I do that, you know, the other day they re-released Godfather and I just told my son, I was like, we just have to go. Like, we have to see it in the movie theater. Let's get tickets. Let's get popcorn. Let's talk about it afterwards. And we had the most fun conversation after it was over. He's turning 20 and he's got that student brain too, where he's like, 
Talk to me about why there were so many different kinds of acting in that movie. Like Pacino is so different than Duvall, and Duvall is so different than Brando, and Brando's so different than Jimmy Kahn, and yet they're all like working as a part of an orchestra. When you walk out of that movie, you feel like you could meet those characters at a Knicks game. You think they're real people. And he was just kind of going, how do you create that? And I do think that the more parents are real with their kids, and by real, I mean like, oh, you know, play them a piece of music you like, and you learn about your parents through what they value. The weight of those expectations that your mother set, whether you felt them or not, you got to work incredibly early because at the age of 13, you're living in Princeton when you get wind of this open casting call for a movie called The Explorers. It's this big Paramount movie directed by Joe Dante, and you get a major part starring alongside River Phoenix. The filming goes great. You've equated the process to a kind of summer movie camp. <laughs> but I want to go to the night of the premiere in the summer of 1985. Do you remember that screening? Absolutely. What happened? Well, I was at the Ziegfeld, and it was a kind of old movie theater that, I don't know, in the 20s, they would actually, it was a theater where people acted and danced, and the screening room itself is huge. I mean, I, I'd be guessing what it was, but it felt like 2000 or something. It was a lot of people, and River and I were in the heat of our adolescence, you know, we're, we're looking at 15, and, um, and we went to the, to the John after it was over and listened to everybody talk about how bad the movie was. It was such an interesting moment because, you know, as you're living your life, you're kind of, some part of you is writing the novel of your life. Like the story in my head was I didn't go through all this trouble of this open casting call of getting picked out of obscurity to star in this major, you know, it was $30 million in 1984. It was a huge movie. Joe had just done Gremlins. Everything Joe touched had been gold, right? So the narrative in my head was, this is going to be E.T. The narrative wasn't that we'd go through all this just to have it get panned and fall into obscurity. I knew in the bathroom after the screening was over that people were not going to like the movie. I mean, it might have played two weekends tops. And I went from being like the big shot in school, like, hey, that kid's in a movie. Oh, my God. To, ha, ha, you thought you were going to be a big deal. You're a loser. And that's, you're even worse than somebody was. You you had your chance and you blew it, as De Niro says in Copland. I told you we could have taken them down and you blew it. You blew it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, both of our De Niro impersonations are not good, but I have an, they're not I, good. I have an excuse. I don't think you do. I don't, but I'm, I'm not, I've never, <laughs> never been good at impersonations. I'm terrible at them. So it's like, it's such an unbelievably unique story. Like for two kids to have their dreams so immediately trampled on by adults. And then I thought in reading that, you know, maybe it's not that unique. Like maybe in some small ways in the classroom, on the playground, at home, maybe that's always happening to dreams. Maybe... Your dreams are trampled on, and your job is to see what's left of them on the other side of that trampling. I have a lot to say about that. The first book I wrote has a line in it that says uh, something to the point of when you're a kid, everybody asks you to follow your dreams, and then as soon as you do, they act offended. And it was really indicative of how I was feeling that there were these expectations. Well, what I didn't understand is not everybody was my mom, right? And the world is a cold and hard 
dark place and not everybody is rooting for you and you really have to root for yourself. You know, you have to be your own champion. And if you can't handle failure, then you better get out of the kitchen, as they say, you know, that failure is a part of life and growth and learning. One of the things I like about the movie Black Phone that just came out this summer is that it's a lot about that idea that our parents often in so many stories of people's childhood, whether it's your parents or whether it's teachers or society as a whole, it's not rooting for you. You know, people can be abusive. Situations can be abusive. And ultimately, you can't use that as permission to fail. Because if you do, you're letting them take your light. They can't take your light. You know that great Eleanor Roosevelt quote, nobody can make you feel inferior without your permission? That's true and also hard to live. You know, theaters across this country, I was just up at the Harlem Renaissance Theater last night, and this theater was an amazing production of Twelfth Night. And these young people who are in it, these parks, these communities, need our support to care for them, to take care of the theater, make sure they have money for costumes, make sure they have life. These are life-changing moments for the players and for the audiences. To, but we as a society have to create that. And we're not doing it all the time. You know, we're not looking after this country, the world, I don't know, puts a very high value on the accumulation of wealth and the accumulation of status, despite the obvious example that the people who accumulate wealth are miserable. I mean, it's just obvious over and over again, turn into blowhard jerks. And, but it's in what we choose to celebrate that we dictate to our kids what we think is valuable. If we think it's really neat and important that a dude puts gold, his name in gold letters on the side of all his buildings, if we act like that's an achievement, then kids are going to think that's an achievement. If we celebrate ideas and faith and education, wisdom. If we value our elders, we're telling young people that it matters, that experience matters, growth matters, maturity matters. You know, there's constant noise out there that being 22 is the best time of your life, probably because you look the foxiest. It's so insulting. Let's go to you at 19. Okay. I think you look good then. I think you look better now. Thanks, dude. I think this is peacock. <laughs> All right. I like it. I know my opinion really matters the most in that regard, too. Well, it matters a lot to me, you know. <laughs> um, at 19, that dream of yours to be an artist, it survives the bathroom incident. It survives high school. It survives your parents splitting up and having to go back and forth between the two of them. It survives doubts, insecurities. Definitely. It even survives you getting kicked out of Carnegie Mellon on your first day of college. Mm -hmm. It survived long enough for you to get in a film called Dead Poet Society. At the time when you made this movie, this is what you said of working with Robin Williams. I kind of ignored him. I was really, really serious about my work and it was hard to work with him. And I like being the center of attention and you can never be the center of attention so long as he was in the room. <laughs> I can't believe I said that. What a dope. I kind of love it because it's so honest. <laughs> I mean, see, the thing about being young is you have no context to understand what's happening to you. I now know that witnessing Robin Williams on a film set is like witnessing Babe Ruth hit a home run. Like, it's like being on his team. When you're first on his team, you're thinking, I got to get on base myself. I don't care about Babe Ruth. Then 25 years go by and you go, oh, wow, that guy taught me how to hit. 
And obviously what I wasn't old enough to understand is that spark, like a cat going, like that kind of electric kinetic energy that Robin was putting in a room is called creativity. And these sparks were starting to fly. I've often said that my first real experience of touching acting, the experience of losing yourself in a character and becoming a part of something better than yourself was in the I Sound My Barbaric Yawp scene in Dead Poets Society. He makes me, he's spinning me around, makes me make up a poem. And you know when acting is going really well when you don't remember it. I always have this joke like, if you think you did a bad job, you probably did. If you think you did a great job, you definitely didn't because it was self-conscious. You were patting yourself on the back. If you can't remember it, then there's a good chance something beyond your conscious thinking was at play. And if that's happening, you've tapped the subconscious and you might have invited Dionysus into the room. Here's a clip from the 1989 film, Dead Poet Society. There, close your eyes. Close your eyes. Close them. Now, describe what you see. Uh, I, I close my eyes. Yes. Uh, and this image floats beside me. Sweaty tooth madman. The sweaty tooth madman. Or the stare that pounds my brain. Oh, that's excellent. Now give him action. Make him do something. His hands reach out and choke me. That's wonderful, wonderful. And all the time he's mumbling. What's he mumbling? Uh, mumbling truth. Yeah, yeah. Truth like, like a blanket that always leaves your feet cold. Forget them, forget them. Stay with the blanket. Tell me about that blanket. You, 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 you push it, stretch it. It'll never be enough. You kick at it, beat it. It'll never cover any of us. From the moment we enter crime to, to the moment we leave dying, it'll just cover your face as you wail and cry and scream. On the heels of that performance, you take these roles in Hollywood movies. I don't know if you remember them or not. I think I do. Dad, White Fang, Mystery Date, and Midnight Clear, which in your early 20s, I'm sure put some money in your pocket. But in trying to figure out what kind of artist you wanted to be, there seems to be this shift that happens inside of you in the mid-90s. And I wondered how much that had to do with River Phoenix's passing in October of 1993. You have this quote. You said, We never leave our childhood behind. River Phoenix was my first scene partner, and when the explorers didn't pan out, I still always had River as an example of someone who made it. In high school, I would think, Oh, I know River. I, I just slept over at his house. That's just my friend River up there on screen. So that dream of acting was in part kept alive by River, but when he dies, does some part of that dream die too? No. It's very difficult to explain why, but I think death is a really hard concept for us to understand. Sometimes I think we understand the clock about as well as our dogs do. What is the nature of time and what is the nature of reality? River is still with me, somewhere. He visits me in dreams. I see him when I watch Joaquin work. I see him when I see young actors inspired by my own private Idaho. This idea that life has this beginning, middle, and end, I don't know if that's true. Your grandfather didn't live 80 years ago. He lived in the present moment, just like you do. The present moment is this time continuum. And I often think, you know, would River do this part? How would he be responding to the way the industry is changing? You know, River was more comfortable being a rebel than I was. 
when he took my own private Idaho, that was a badass move because to play a gay character in the early 90s was if you had an agent, if you were in contact with anybody in Hollywood, it was like career suicide. Now, thank God it's looked at differently. But River didn't even think like that. He just thought that's the dumbest thing he ever heard. He was an artist and he was going to play people. These are people. That's our job to hold the mirror to nature as twere, right? I mean, that's, that's the gig. Tell the truth. Let the chips fall where they may. So is he gone? No. I do hurt that, you know, you were really nice a minute ago. You're saying that this is a good time for me. And you're like, he's not been not alive for so long now. I mean, this experience I'm having watching my daughter thrive. My daughter is a 24-year-old artist. It's a thrill beyond imagination. Having a grown child emerge as a fully developed human being with their own ideas and their own radical thinking and seeing them challenge you, it's like the aurora borealis or something. It's like watching the sky shimmer. It's not a feeling anyone had prepared me for. And River's not getting to have that. But we're all on a different journey. Clearly, that was not the journey he was supposed to have. I don't have the answers to these things, but if you ask me, you know, did part of that dream die with his death, the answer is soundly no. In some ways, his passing seemed to embolden you to take those chances, to be more creative. And I'm thinking about movies like Reality Bites, Gattaca, and of course, Before Sunrise. And, and it's that movie, Before Sunrise, early in production, you and Julie Delpy are filming a scene when the director, Richard Linklater, interjects and presses you on an acting approach that wasn't working for the film. What was he asking of you that you weren't offering? Well, there... You were laughing as I was saying that. Well, I'm <laughs> laughing hard because I, re I remember and I'm, I'm impressed with these questions. Um, we all have these moments where you're on the road and then these a left or a right and your life is forever changed. One of those moments for me was obviously Dead Poets Society. My life took a hard, you know, left turn right there. And I, I got invited into some rooms that I longed to be in. And the next turn was on the day that you mentioned. You have to put yourself in the early 90s, right? So I, I was starting a theater company. You are right. River's death did empower me. When you were talking about that, I thought about this. A great Tennessee Williams line about the clock keeps ticking. And with every tick, the sound is lost, 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 right? And once you really have an awareness of time, things can open up in a good way that the time is always now. Right now is the time to do it. And, and I had seen Slacker at that moment in time. That was punk rock. You know, that was a new voice in the cinema landscape. And I was smart enough to hear it. And I wasn't alone. Lots of people heard it. Slacker kind of cut a knife. It pierced through all the kind of phony 80s Hollywood, you know, Everybody's trying to make money, right? Everybody's like got a trademark by their name. And Linkletter came out and said, I'm bored with that. You know, what's our generation going to be? What are we going to do? I'm going to get to the, your answer, but I just I need to give it some context so it makes sense. One of the guys in our theater company, Anthony Rapp, was in Days Confused, and he invited us to an early screening. So Steve Zahn, myself, we all, we went, we, you know, we snuck a 12-pack into Days to Confuse. And 
I just felt like something was wrong in the universe that I wasn't in this movie. <laughs> I needed to be in this movie. And then, lo and behold, a couple of days later, Linkletter shows up at a production of uh, Sophistry, Jonathan Mark Sherman's Sophistry. And we went out and talked all night, and I had a very strong feeling that this was a formidable human being that, was, uh, that I was very like-minded to. So I get the part and Before Sunrise, and I'm there, and it's really early on. And I'm kind of, I guess you might say, I'm imitating River. I'm imitating this idea of what an intense film actor might look like or feel like. And Linkletter just stops after Tink goes, what are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, it kind of looks like you're acting. I'm like, uh-huh. And he goes, and see, the trouble is, if you're acting, then we have to have a plot. And... We don't have a plot, so you need to stop acting. Basically, I was doing the kind of tricks that every director I'd ever worked with before loved. This broody look, this intense glance, this, oh, that, you know, kind of a Kazan thinking of what's in my pockets, what's my secret. I was doing a lot. And he was like, the challenge of this movie is, can we simply be? What if you were enough? What if there was nothing fake here? If there was nothing fake here, then we wouldn't need a plot because we'd be watching real people. And it opened the door for me to kind of think about acting differently. That you are enough. Well, we don't do this stuff alone, right? You know, I mean, it's, there's a really wonderful book that just came out called The Method. It charts the history of method acting. And one of the things that Stanislavski and Chekhov were really about is taking us away from this declarative you know, Shakespeare way, like these grand stories, these grand ideas. What if we could actually, you know, our life is made up of these tiny, fragile moments. And they were really inspired by Tolstoy, who was mining these delicate, delicate moments of which life hinges on. And I started thinking about that, this idea of you don't have to pretend to be the character. You have to be the character in imaginary circumstances you actually have to be alive. And that takes intense relaxation, imagination, and concentration, singularity of focus. And if you do that and you start to blur the line between actor and character, something very dynamic can happen. Putting a pause on the conversation, we'll be right back with Ethan Hawke after a quick break. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious. But the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to The Tipping Point. And market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off. 
but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You said after making Before Sunrise, I never looked back after that movie. I could stop imitating other actors. I guess... It's about breaking the mask we wear for the world and letting as much truth seep out of the cracks as possible. How much truth do you think seeped through the cracks on Before Sunset in 2004? A ton. I mean, <laughs> I mean to say, if you look at the opening shot of that movie, I don't look well. And we really just kind of used the place that I was in as the place that Jesse was in. And the movie, those movies, in a lot of ways, the main character is time. And there's a, a disappointment. Uh, when I was doing Before Sunrise, it's 95. 
I was lit up with what this profession could be. I was putting a lot of the insecurities of my early 20s behind me. I'd, I'd made some friends. You know, friends are so valuable, like-minded artists. I was seeing other people's work. You know, I was inspired to go see John Leguizamo in a little basement theater. And you just, this is my generation. And he was lighting it on fire. And I, like you said, I was aware of the clock ticking. River was gone. I'd met Richard Linkletter. Like, I'd, I'd had this idea that great art was made by older people, the generation before us, the Peter Weirs of the world. And Rick was saying, no, what are we? What are we going to do with this moment? So I was very alive with that. Then life, you know, it's surprising. You get hit with a baseball bat, you know, fall in love, have a couple kids, and you can't make your marriage work. And you thought you had your shit together. And you don't. I felt completely cut off at the ankles. And I did what I always do, which is to just put it into performance. The thing that I love about performance is that emotions are a drag, man. <laughs> when you get upset at Thanksgiving and you like get hurt feelings at something your dad said, and you just want to have a good time, you know why it's feelings, or you, or you say something snotty to your daughter because she hurt your feelings, or you say something mean to your brother, or emotions get the better of us, and they're like hanging in our chest. You know, we're trying to shovel them into the closet in the right order so they don't screw us up. And acting is this one place where you can do something productive with them. You know, you can put them on stage and weep or yell or be stone silent or whatever it is, and you can put it into art. And then all of a sudden, you've kind of offered it to the gods and they can burn it up for you. And so before sunset, the friendship that Julie and Rick showed me at that time you know, it was one of the great summers of my life because it was just this kind of healing elixir, which was to revisit Jesse and revisit the person I was in 94 and the things I thought about and what had, what, what had happened. It kind of realigned the arrow for me. I think because you put parts of yourself in these characters, in some ways, these before movies, all three of them represent different points in your life. And by the time Before Midnight comes around in 2013, you're remarried, you're a father to four kids, I think it is. But there's a scene in the opening of that film. It is one, perhaps as a product of divorce, that has stayed with me since I watched it. And I thought, if you wouldn't mind, uh, we would watch it together for a moment. Yeah. This is you as Jesse saying goodbye to your son at the airport as he heads back home to his mother after summer vacation. Okay. You feel confident about making the connection? Yeah, after this before. Yeah, but not with a tricky connection like this. Just remember that, you know, when you land, you stay in your seat. Somebody from the airline's going to come get you and take you to the gate, right? It's not a problem. Okay. All right. <laughs> oh, boy. Well... Looks like maybe we should just do this thing, huh? Hmm? Okay, come here. Oh, God! I'm gonna do my best to make that recital, okay? You know, I wouldn't bother. <laughs> what makes you say that? Look, I'm not being mean, but it'd be easier if you didn't come to recital. How come? It'd just be better if you visited on a nothing weekend. But, uh, I want to see you play. Look, it's because Mom hates you so much. She'd be really stressed if you were there, and then be tense for me. You know, thank you. 
wouldn't have any time to hang out anyway. Don't worry about it. We'll figure that out. We can. Just don't want you to worry about it. You know. I mean, you know how much I miss you, right? Why do you think she still hates me so much? I don't know. <laughs> I think she hates Daniel more than she hates you. Don't worry about it. I'll figure something out. We should just do this thing. Yeah. But I mean, is there anything I can do to help? I don't know. Yeah, but you know that I love you, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I know. This okay. has been the best summer of my life. Really? Yeah. Well, me too. See, I told you. I told you this whole Grease thing was going to be great. And it was. Okay. <laughs> I love you, pal. I love you too, Dad. Okay, okay shake my hand. Bye. Well, that's a really mean thing to do, to make me watch that. Would never be um, a mean thing that I... No, I don't mean, I was joking that it's mean. It's, it's mean. What I mean is it's hard for me to watch it. But that's what I was talking about, blurring the line between character and actor and trying to put the truth on screen. You're a child of divorce, is that what you said? Your parents just split up? I was, I was that, you know, I was that kid. It's really hard. You know, my daughter speaks really beautifully, Maya, about this, about divorce is so common that it seems trite sometimes to talk about the pain of it, but it doesn't stop being hard. It's a trauma of some kind that is ongoing because of how much we all long for love and we long for our family to all love each other and be kind to each other. And it's I know that scene that you just played is like the biggest lion in my psyche. I've lived that scene from both characters. I mean, I watch that scene and I think about my dad and how much I hated those, um, you know, the security things when, when he couldn't come anymore. You know, and there'd always be some problem, some metal thing in my bag or they took my pocket knife he gave me away or, you know, some just, some insult. We were trying to have a nice goodbye. I've, I, I've done it with my own son. You know, I played the dad and that. And it's, and kids are always so sweet. You know, the kids trying to make me feel better, telling me the summer's been great. And I, you know, you know, the summer was probably hard for that kid. He's away from his mom. You know, one of the things that was really important to uh, Rick and I about that scene is often we get complimented on the ending of Before Sunset, that the ending of that movie is very strong and it has a, you know, oh baby, you're gonna miss that plane. And Jesse says, I know. And it's like in this moment, you know he's gonna give to this love and his first marriage is gonna be over. We, you know, we used to laugh as we've made the only film that makes people feel good about divorce, right? <laughs> we've, we've legitimized having an affair, you know? And we felt to honor the situation that the third movie had to start with that young man. It had to start with the cost of that decision to miss that plane. And how following your heart is such a complicated expression. It sounds so easy but we don't operate 
in a vacuum. We are not isolated. We are interconnected. When we hurt ourselves, we hurt others. It's why as one gets older, one puts a larger and larger uh, stake in the word gentle, to move as gently as possible to the truth. You know, that. yeah, I, 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 hadn't, I, I hadn't seen that scene since, the, since we finished the movie. I was watching you watch it, and it all seemed to come back up. I'm really glad you made me. It's, it's funny, like when you said you're going to play it, my honest reaction was, oh, you don't need to. I know the scene by heart, you know? But I didn't. I didn't know it by heart. I'd forgotten that he asked me not to come to his recital. Like, ugh, these kids, you know, ugh. You know, and you know, for those of us who have lived it, you know, it's just, it's a trauma if your dad comes, it's a trauma if he doesn't. It's up to, if your mom showed like, oh, <laughs> you know, there's just no, if your parents can't get over their own ego and their own nonsense, they just wreak havoc on these young people. Since the beginning of this talk, we've been talking about parents in one way or another. The ones you had growing up in New Jersey and Texas the one you became later in life. And the idea of parenting while remaining an artist, it's at the heart of this new film with Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. They shared a whole lot of kids together, but there's this line that Joanne has that I can't quite shake. She said, I don't think actors make very good parents. And I wondered when you discovered that quote, how that made you feel. Well, funny, it might surprise you. I don't know. I thought, oh, I have to put this in the movie. I mean, I, if, an a, if an actor is going to make a movie about other actors, we must turn the microscope inward. I think I've gotten to know her very well through researching and watching all these interviews. She said everything with a smile and a laugh and a giggle. She's very Southern. And she could have easily said, I don't think human beings make very good parents. I actually am just fascinated by that line. I also think usually when she would make comments like that, she was talking to women's groups and she was talking about how much society strong arms mothers into extremely uncomfortable positions. You know, she goes on to talk about no sooner do you have a baby than like you're guilty if you're on set and not with the kids and you're guilty if you're just with the kids because you've gave up your career. And Paul never had to make that choice. Why am I the only one in this couple being forced to make that choice? And it, she didn't blame Paul. Society did it. I see it all the time. You know, I, my wife is my producing partner. and Like, we'll go to set all the time. And if she's on set, first thing anybody says, where are your kids? Nobody ever has asked me that question. Inside the question, there's a little bit of a dig. You know, it's like, shouldn't you be with them? And yet, if you're at home with the kids, they'll come over and say, so what do you do? Which is also a dig. Like, you just sit here and watercolor all day. There's no winning. And that's what Joanne is talking about. And she's saying you should think long and hard before you have kids because she underestimated her own ambition. You know, this amazing scene in Fugitive Kind that she has with Brando where she says, I just want to live. I want to be touched. I want to be noticed. I want to be felt. You know, and he goes, I just, I just want to live, man. I don't need to be noticed. That was a pretty good impression. Yeah, I, I, I do him all right. It was definitely better than our De Niro's. Yeah. <laughs> and don't man. But I mean to say, what I love about Joanne making that comment is she's very comfortable 
just launching out uncomfortable truths. Meaning like, people say, you know, were you ever jealous of Paul's rising star? And she just says, yeah. What is she, Saint Joanne Woodward? You know, no. (laughs) And it's actually that honesty that I think, that honesty and that wit, the ability to joke about it, make light of it, live in the truth that I think helped them grow. And by the way, I do think they were excellent parents. And I think she was awfully hard on herself. You know, so much of her frustration comes out of what you said, a kind of gendered comment of not being able to make the films she wanted to make. And in contrast, Paul got to mostly explore anything he wanted to explore, anything he wanted. And I'm thinking about the parallels between the two of you on the other side of Before Midnight. There are two films that to me seem like the kind of movies you dreamt of making as a kid. And those are Born to be Blue and First Reformed. And I wonder where those two films land with you now. Well, you're 100% right. You know, to get a movie like Born to be Blue made, it takes some effort. That little kid in me that wanted to be a movie actor, to play Chet Baker, scratched an itch. First of all, I love jazz and I love music. And I had tried to talk Linkletter into making a movie about Chet Baker 15 years earlier. We worked hard on it. We tried. We just couldn't get it made. And so when Robert Boudreaux came to me with this idea, it was like, it was like getting to do the sequel to a movie I never did the first one of, to visit Chet in his early 40s with his busted teeth and his addiction issues. And midlife crisis. And a total midlife crisis. And see, I love that stuff. You know, Sinister and Born to be Blue are my two kind of midlife crisis movies, you know, where it's just men wrestling with, oh, shit, I, I, I didn't get to be who I thought I could be. You know, and then the Paul Schrader film, you work your whole life to get an at-bat like that. It's like getting an at-bat in the bottom of the seventh with the World Series, you know, like, you, like, wow, I can't believe Coach put me in right now. I can win this thing. You know, when I was starting that theater company with my friends and stuff, there was this St. Mark's movie theater. I used to play these revival houses, and I saw a Taxi Driver and Raging Bull one evening and just had the roof of my head taken off. You know, I almost wanted to quit being, after I saw those movies, I was like, I, not, I can't even contribute. This is a joke. They were just full-blown masterpieces. So to get a script from Paul Schrader, and I remember how I felt when I read it, I said to my wife, I'm like, I'd make this movie on an iPhone. Like, let's do this. This has got to happen. So Paul gave me one of the most golden opportunities of my life. And I, to try to make meaningful art about where the religious community sits in regards to helping us caretake the planet felt like a really important thing to make a movie about. And to have the script actually be great, it felt like a huge opportunity. And I felt ready for it. You know, I just played Macbeth. I kind of put myself through a boot camp. Whenever I get lost, or I'm not sure what to do, the answer to me usually is just to work a little harder and see what, where it kicks in. And I, I took a year and I did Chekhov's first play, Ivan Off. I did Breck's first play, Ball. And I did uh, Macbeth. And it was like really hard, but it was the ultimate grad school. And I was in really good acting shape for Paul Schrader. Those two movies, you're right. Those are like, hey, it's good to be an adult. You know what I mean? Like, it's good to have grown-up parts. When First Reform comes out, you and Paul Schrader spend the next few months doing all these Q&As around the country. And there's just one car ride that you have with him where you ask him about 
all the guys he came of age with. Scorsese, Pacino, Hackman, Dustin Hoffman, Nicholson, De Niro. Do you remember that conversation? Yeah, I do. It's important to understand that Paul's not sitting in judgment of how anybody else lives their life. He's just being himself. And Paul's really comfortable maintaining his punk rock status. Meaning Paul did not put a high value on the accumulation of wealth. And he did not see that as a marker of artistic excellence. And, you know, look, sometimes I think when, it's, when I meet older people, sometimes all that happened deliberately and sometimes that happened to them and they made the best of it. You know, I don't know. I bet you if he had been offered, you know, $10 million to direct a movie, he probably would have done it, you know. But you got to pay to play, meaning if you don't make people money, you don't get to do it again, right? And so there becomes an obligation you know, when you make something like First Reformed or Before Midnight or Boyhood or whatever, that, that you got to get out there and sell that thing because if it doesn't make any money, you're not going to get to do this again. It's not about collecting the money for yourself, you know, in that way. And I have always had a great romance around the artistic struggle. I have never seen opulence or anything above the middle-class lifestyle as, as a win. I'm not saying I don't enjoy riding on a first-class plane. I, I, I like it. Somebody gives me some oysters and a glass of champagne, I'll hoover the whole thing up. I'm not living like a, a monk in my hair shirt, you know, I'm not saying that. What I was moved by Paul is he was like, you know what, I'm going to stay true to this voice and I'm not going to try to write things just because I know it'll make me money. And I love that about him and it has kept him close to love. One of the things that's amazing, for example, about being in a rehearsal hall for what pops to mind is Lie of the Mind. I'm directing the Sam Shepard play and it's Keith Carradine and Alessandro Nivola and Laurie Metcalf, all these amazing people. And we're rehearsing. You know why everyone is in the room. Everyone is in the room because we love this play and want to do it well. When you get on the set of a big Hollywood movie, some people want to be in it because... They want the next job. Some people want to be in it because they owe 10 grand. The spirit of it's different. And I think Paul stayed very close to that spirit that he's very connected to the same artist that made Taxi Driver, that spirit of the rascal. In the middle of making this new movie, you find yourself in the barn that Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward once owned. And inside the barn, you see all these trophies all these awards, prizes you've coveted. You said, they had two of everything I ever wanted. And these trophies are just there collecting dust. And I wondered, um, seeing that, what did that do to your notion of success, of what you want in this life? It's hard to explain, but I will admit, I was surprised at how profoundly depressed I felt driving home. To make the picture clear for, for people listening, you know, they were very humble people and their house was actually surprised. It's a small little country house. It's a couple acres of land, nothing flashy about it. The one flashy thing is they renovated their barn and that's where they would entertain. They didn't invite people into their house, but they would keep the barn clean and they would host parties there and they would screen movies there. And that's like, oh, come over, we'll meet at the barn. What was fascinating is behind the movie theater screen 
if you raised it up, there were all these prizes. You know, it's just unbelievable. I mean, Cannes Film Festival winner, Berlin Film Festival, festivals I hadn't even heard of, four Oscars, 49 Emmys, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, it's just like, it's all right there. And I'm staring at it, like you said, and they're collecting dust. And what depressed me probably was, if this doesn't mean anything, what does? If we say that money's not worth doing it, and if we let awards be a symbol of artistic excellence and achievement, obviously they're unreliable, blah, blah, blah. But in general, when you have that many, you probably did a good job, right? But if that doesn't mean anything, then what does mean something? You know, and that's a really, really big question. And I was left sitting with it because I thought, if I'm going to make a movie about these people, like, what does it mean? And I, I ended up being left with this old thought I've always had, that it's not what you do, it's how you do it and how you live your life and how you, your real legacy is on the people that know you and love you and the impact that your time here has. Those awards are meaningful to them. You know, they were there behind that screen for them, for their secret confidence. You know, I'm sure they had insecure days and maybe it made them feel a little like, hey, you know, I got this. And they're not for anybody else. The achievement in of themselves couldn't matter less. But what does matter is the way they got them and the way they moved through space. Their grandchildren, their children, their fellow collaborators, the way their work has impact on the way that we work now. I mean, I love, there's a moment in the doc that I just love. I don't even know if it matters to anybody else. But I'm just goofing around talking to Sam Rockwell. And out of nowhere, he remembers a moment from The Sting that he probably hasn't seen in 25 years where Paul's wiping his mouth with a tie. And you're like, these things are a part of us. They live inside of us. And we are carrying on these torches and fires that are lit from generations before. And if that's true, then what we do today matters to the future. And not just your kids, your friends, your people, the people you see tonight at dinner. You know, all of it is happening in the present tense. And that is what I was like, oh, reason why these awards are depressing is they're in the past tense. That's over, you know? Well, let's talk about the present tense. Okay. You turned 50 last year. Mm -hmm. And uh, way back in 1994, with your first interview in Rolling Stone, a little before Before Sunrise came out, in that interview, idealistic, open-hearted, 24-year-old you talked about writing letters to yourself from when you were 40 and 50. I think I said 40. I thought 40 was old. Yeah. And you put those letters in a drawer. And I'm wondering, now that you're 51, if the content of those letters ring true. Well, they were surprisingly uninteresting to me, actually. <laughs> I'm so glad I brought him up then. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the fact of them is interesting. It's amazing the way young people think. You know, I, I wanted all these exterior symbols of like what a good person was. Number one, never get divorced. I hope you're not divorced. Number one, I was so hell-bent to not be my parents, you know, and to get right. And I didn't. I didn't. And so what the young person doesn't know is that failure opened my heart up to loving my parents and seeing my parents. And that started to heal me. So this thing that I saw as this horrible negative was actually an essential key to a developmental growth. And things that I think of are positives can so quickly turn into a negative. You know, if it goes to your head, if it gets confusing, like 
There's so many parts in my life that I have prayed, dear, loving God, all omniscient being, master of the arts, please let me play this part. I will be of service. I will give myself everything. You know, and I didn't get it. Somebody got it. And the movie was terrible and it didn't <laughs> matter less. And the thing that I did get four days later changed my life for the better. It's like, we have no idea what's good for us, right? We don't understand the relationship to success, failure, growth, time, wisdom. When I look back in my life and I look at the times that I thought I was in the most pain, now they're like the most interesting times because there was all this growth happening. But you know, when you're in it, you think you're, you're taking punches. You don't know you're getting stronger. You said recently that right now you're in the beginning of your last act. We've gone through all these highs and lows, peaks and valleys, these dreams that changed, got trampled on, were resurrected, emboldened by the passing of a friend, fortified in movies like the Before Trilogy. And I guess I just want to know, as you and I sit here, what really matters to you in this moment? All things be well if our minds be so. Right? When your head's on straight, you can handle any adversity. I'm going to the movies tonight with Maya. That really matters to me. I'm going to pick my two youngest up from camp. I'm going to sit in a car driving to Vermont for like five hours to pick them up. I'm really looking forward to talking to my wife. It's so fun just to be alone in a car with her and just yak for just, you know, because we won't be on our phone. It'll just be fun to stop at a gas station, buy a Dr. Pepper or something. I just I look looking forward to that. My son sent me a song he wrote last night. Greatest way a person could go to sleep is get a text from their son that of a new song they're working on. Listen to it a couple times. Like, that's real. I'm old enough to know that my relationship to my art will simply be as good as I make it. Meaning, I really hope that Scorsese or Spike Lee or somebody great, you know, calls me up and says, hey, will you be in my movie? That'd be super fun. I would really. But ultimately, whether or not I have a good relationship to my art or not is up to me. I can do that all by myself. And sometimes, you know, perceive success as an immense distraction from the real work of your life, which is being in touch with yourself so that you can be good to other people. So all that stuff's really real. So when I say, like, the last act, some people act like, oh, don't say that. Like, like I, I'm not planning my funeral. It's just if life's a three-act play, you know, I mean, hell, let's call a spade a spade. This is the beginning of the third act, right? You know, and and I feel ready for it. Meaning like, well, if it's spring, summer, and autumn, autumn's harvest time. My hope is to take these experiences that you've so wonderfully, you know, exhumed from the past and let them accumulate into some kind of harvest. You know, the last few years have definitely been my favorites. You know, like Good Lord Bird, First Reformed, this documentary, getting to do the kind of work, character work in Black Phone or The Northman. I'm getting to have the kind of varied experience I always longed for. I say the last act with great anticipation. Like, this has been a great play so far. I bet the third act's going to be great. You know, <laughs> that's what I hope. The last thing I want to share with you, because we have to go, in that last act, does the actor's vow still mean something to you? And if so, I thought maybe we'd read it. I think it's incredible. Vincent D'Onofrio gave me that years ago. It's a vow for actors written by Ilya Kazan. 
It's basically, you know, it's a mantra. And I think part of what kept Paul and Joanne clicking for 50 years, it really is like a vow to a religious order or something. You know, it's like if you look at your artistic life as an inner life, as a spiritual journey, then one lifetime is not enough. It's not like you can achieve it. It won't be achieved. It has to be lived. And in living, it will continue to expand. Do you want to read it? No one needs me reading it. They heard my De Niro impression already. (laughs) All right. This is called The Actor's Vow from Elia Kazan. I will take my rightful place on the stage and I will be myself. I am not a cosmic orphan. I have no reason to be timid. I will respond as I feel, awkwardly, vulgarly, but respond. I will have my throat open. I will have my heart open. I will be vulnerable. I may have anything or everything the world has to offer, but the thing I need most and want most is to be myself. I will admit rejection, admit pain, admit frustration, admit even pettiness, admit shame, admit outrage, admit anything and everything that happens to me. The best and most human parts of me are those that I have inhabited and hidden from the world. I will work on it. I will raise my voice. I will be heard. Well, I have so enjoyed hearing you and seeing you in this conversation in all the work through the years. And in the beginning of this talk, you were so worried about being a cardboard cutout of yourself. I so hope that um, you were anything but. Well, let me tell you this, that um, that's because of you. And so I thank you. You obviously put a tremendous amount of thought into this. I so appreciate the interest and the concern and the way to frame the conversation in the most interesting way possible, which is, uh, which is your doing. Ethan Hawke, pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much. our show. Special thanks to Brianna Smith, Jonah Rosenblatt, HBO, and of course, Ethan Hawke. His six-part docuseries, The Last Movie Stars, is now available to stream on HBO Max. To learn more about Ethan and his work, visit our website at talkeasypod.com. On the site, you'll find over 250 episodes with performers like Julie Delpy, Edward Norton, Kate Blanchett, John Bernthal, Pam Greer, 
Matthew McConaughey, Laura Dern, Pedro Pascal, and Questlove. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support Talk Easy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or our vinyl record with Fran Lebowitz. You can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. As always, reviewing the program on Spotify, Apple is still the best way for new listeners to find the show. If you don't want to write anything, just giving us five stars is plenty helpful. I thank you in advance for the support. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was taped at iHeartMedia in New York City. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with Lena Dunham. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.